Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah. I've been in Jonah the last few times that I've been with you. And we'll start in verse 17 of of that chapter. Of chapter 1, I mean. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and we will read to the end of chapter 2. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and we're reading to chapter 2, verse 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, for you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Thus sends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Uh, let us pray now and seek his blessing. Oh Lord, again we do come before you and thank you for your word. We thank you for what it can teach us and what it can do for us in helping us to walk closer to you. We ask now, O Christ, that you will be with us by your Spirit as we hear your word, that it may affect our hearts, souls, and minds as we seek to walk closer with you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I had something prepared to say to to lead us into this, and with the events of this week, I'm going to sort of take an audible as I I speak briefly on General Assembly. I, I say that because not to go into what happened. I mean, there will be a number of t- opportunities for us to to talk about that, and I and I think even Richard will be uh, printing a report at some point soon. Uh, but but the thing about it was that there was so much prayer for the Lord's mercy upon the PCA for our church. Um, I, uh, no denomination is free from a lot of the discussions that we've been having, and. Because of that, a number of prayers were made for the Lord's mercy, kindness, and grace as we, as the elders were deliberating on the, on the business, the work of the church, as we seek to remain faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. We sought His mercy because we all need His mercy as we do His work. We're sinners in, in holy need of His grace, and 
I can't help but think of the many prayers that went on even during the week, the pre-assembly prayer meetings that were going on uh, right outside the assembly halls. Well, prayers for mercy, prayers of that sort are examples that you and I can certainly uh, learn from and follow even in our own prayer lives where we seek the face of God in mercy. And that's exactly what we find here modeled for us in Jonah's prayer. Uh, this is a prayer for mercy, as I discovered, and, and it's a prayer of mercy that, like the Psalms, where we model our praise or model our worship, model our, our prayers, model our even groanings and cries to the Lord. This is one such prayer in which we do the very same. Now, again, we've been going through Jonah the last few times that I've been in the pulpit, and so we know from uh, the rest of chapter 1 that out of a direct act of disobedience, the Lord... Or Jonah uh, disobeyed the Lord and went to Tarshish to, to get as far away from the Lord's presence as he could, to get as far away as he could from doing the prophetic ministry that he had in Nineveh. And it caused a great storm that brought, the, brought certainly Jonah to his knees, or at least to his knees in the belly of the fish. And it brought the pagans to their knees, and, and commit, where they committed themselves to the Lord and, and sought to worship him. Uh, calling upon his name the very first time in verse 7, uh, verse 14, for example. In verse 14, they called upon the Lord's covenant name for the first time in the entire narrative and showing by the end of verse 15 and 16 how they, seeing the works of the Lord, praying to him and him responding according to his will uh, for their lives in this passage, then they committed themselves sacrificing sacrifices, vowing vows, praising Him and worshiping Him and committing to follow Him. Now that's the pagans. But what about Jonah? Jonah, as we again saw that he was running away from the Lord's presence, disobedient to Him, and it brought him way down, well down, into the pit of Sheol, as he talks about in verse 2, of which he attends to the belly of the fish. Uh, we see it as an act of disobedience on Jonah's part and, and certainly an act of judgment. The Lord's bringing him to judgment, certainly. And it's symbolic, of course, of the judgment that the people of Israel are under. Why Jonah is being sent to the nation of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire in Nineveh, is on part, part of the Lord's blessing or promise to bring the Gentiles in to the covenant but also a sign of his judgment that he is beginning to turn his face away from Israel as a nation and to the nations themselves to bring them into his covenant promises. Now that's the story, and that's the subject, that's the context of this prayer, where in the belly of the fish, Jonah opens up a prayer of, I would say, repentance, seeking the mercy of Almighty God. As we consider what this text is teaching us, we'll consider it in this way, in that we see the Lord's mercy in distress and hope and in victory. We see the Lord's mercy in distress and hope and in victory. And we'll unpack that in those three ways. The Lord's mercy in distress, the Lord's mercy in hope, and the Lord's mercy in victory. In distress, in hope, and in victory. So let's look at the first opening few verses in verse in chapter 1, verse 17 to 2, verse 3, under the Lord's mercy and distress. 
I highlight that point because of what we see in verse 2, where he begins saying, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Now, again, let's say something about what's going on here again as far as the broader context. First of all, it says in verse 7 that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Of course, as we've seen, most of the dealings for Jonah in this point is, is all of the Lord's. He's trying to escape the Lord's presence, but as we saw last week, that that's not very possible for Jonah to do. He cannot escape the Lord's presence any more than you and I can escape the Lord's presence, any more than we can escape his oversight, any more than we can escape his judgments and care. And Jonah is finding that out in that he, the Lord, appointed a great fish. It's... It, it sort of gives you that idea of, uh, of election almost. He, he, de he determined to bring this fish into being. Now, I should say something about the fish because most of us would say, well, is it not a whale or, or something like that? Well, probably not. Uh, it's hard to really say because they're, they're, the idea of it being a whale is just really not present into the text. And in fact, I don't know that a whale would see and eat a human being either. But the, the, the fact that the Lord appointed such a fish gives us this sort of idea that the Lord probably specially created this fish to bring, it, bring about uh, eating Jonah as he was thrown into the belly of the sea. Uh, this fish may not have very well been a part of the, uh, the natural order of things, and so the Lord brought it about for uh, the purpose of punishing Jonah in his disobedience. Yet, nevertheless, what, whatever the identity or the subject of this, this species of, of fish is, it, it is clear that the Lord brought it into being for this one singular purpose, and that it, or well, a number of purposes, probably for judging Jonah, for disobeying, and even out of mercy. Like, that's one thing that, that struck me with, with the fact that the Lord brought this fish at all. Like, Jonah was thrown into the into the uh, into the ocean in the middle of a storm, and no doubt, like any you and I, like I'm not the strongest swimmer in the world, uh, so being thrown into the midst of the sea uh, during a raging storm like hurricane force winds, I'm probably not going to make it through. And so I don't know if Jonah could swim at all or, or not, but at least there was a fish that was brought about to uh, at least preserve Jonah's life. And it is an act of mercy on the Lord's part in, in a real and tangible way. Because if you know anything about fish at all, even as they're swimming, there's still water coming into their, in through their gills. And, and they're, they're also eating different things. They're eating different animals and different species of mariner life. And so like to, to envision that Jonah is in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights, he's not being digested he's being he's just sitting there standing probably even at least in this context even praying now Jen is in this the belly of this fish for three days and three nights and it's out of the belly of the fish that we see in verse one that he begins to offer up his prayer i call out to the lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of the of sheol i cried and you heard me for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your ways and your billows passed over me. As we can follow through the narrative of Jonah at this point, the distress that Jonah is under is a spiritual distress, a physical distress even. 
He's calling out to the Lord. The idea of him crying out to the Lord is it, it brings you to the idea of one of distress, perhaps even of repentance at one level. Because as we see at the end of the narrative, Jonah is con con contrasting himself on the one hand with the pagans who will forsake the steadfast covenant love of the Lord. And yet on his hand, he's trying to remember it, trying to build himself up in the fortitude of the covenant love of the Lord. So it begins, it ends with that, of him ascribing to the Lord to the Lord, ascribing salvation to the Lord. But it begins with a cry. It begins with a cry of distress. I mean, you and I cry out to the Lord for help all the time. And, and it's, it's not just some, oh Lord, I need help. It's an impassioned cry. He is in the pits of Sheol, as he were. He's, 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 he, he draws that connection between the belly of the fish and the belly of Sheol. He's, he, it's as if Jonah has been brought down to the place of the dead. That's what Sheol means. It's, being, it's in the place of the dead. It's in the realm of the dead where sinners, or anyone who's gone to be uh, apart from the body to rest until that last resurrection, they go to the place of the dead in Sheol where... They wait until the final resurrection. And for Jonah, being brought down to the place of the dead was a very distressing point. But note also, at least through chapter 1 to this point, the general descent, if you will, of Jonah. He went down to Joppa. He went down to Tarshish. He went down into the sea. Away from the presence of the Lord. The disobedience of Jonah took him as far away from the Lord's presence as possible. Not just from Jerusalem, but as well as his physical direction, so his spiritual direction was also going down to the pits of Sheol. To the pits of hell, as it were. Jonah was in the lowest place possible, and as if it couldn't get worse... When he was taken into the belly of the fish, he went down even further into the waters that were surrounding himself. Crying out to the to mercy of the Lord, he's brought to the lowest point possible as a prophet of the Lord, knowing what he was sent to do to begin with, and knowing that it is his disobedience that has invited the Lord's wrath, that has invited the Lord's chastisement, that has invited the Lord's punishment here. And it's as if this fish is bringing Jonah as a tribunal to a court, bringing him to a place where he can fall down on his knees and cry out to the Lord, and yet also be assured that the Lord answers him and hears him. It's a mercy of the Lord that he, in his distress, is brought to a place of, at one level, judgment in the belly of the fish, but also at another, being brought to a place where he knows the gift and grace of repentance, that he is able to cry out to begin with. And in verse 3, he, we highlighted a moment ago that it, it, he knew it was the Lord's presence because he turns to it in verse 3 and says, You cast me into the deep. Your ways and your billows passed over me. He's not unmistaken that this is the case. Except for you and for me, when we are in places of deep distress, do we not realize that when we are at our wit's end that it is likely that the Lord is trying to teach us something? A, about himself, 
but also about how much we need him. You know, I was used to watch this TV show called Drake and Josh. I mean, you know, it, it was an early 2000s show on Nickelodeon. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't have any inkling of an idea that many of you or, or most of you uh, know anything about that show, but some of you may. I see, see some nods. But there was one episode in particular where uh, the, the brothers are in a helicopter. They're going skydiving. Too scared of heights. I wouldn't do it. Um, they're going skydiving, and, and somewhere along the way, they end up fighting, as brothers tend to do. And they, the, the pilot puts the helicopter on autopilot, and he makes his way back to the back of the border sitting, and he hits his head on a fire hydrant and is passed out cold. So it's like they're, they're still flying and flying and flying. And as, as they continue up, they're, they're getting over the Pacific Ocean. Now, eventually, the, the pilot comes to, and he's awakened, and they're still fighting. And to make that insult to injury, they turn the, uh, the uh, fire hydrant or the uh, extinguisher on and blast him out of the helicopter with one of the two parachutes that they needed. And what you end up seeing by the end of it is the brother, one of the brothers, Josh, he falls to his knees in the midst of the... the, uh, the uh, the helicopter and begins saying, Dear Lord, I am so sorry for hurting that squirrel. I'm so sorry for hurting this thing or that other thing. And it's like, you know, aside from the fact that he's praying for every list of things that could come to his mind, let's not miss the fact that he's doing that because, I mean, if you were in a helicopter 3,000 feet in the air, your pilot's gone, you have one parachute, you're running out of gas, would you not pray as well? <laughs> Jonah's praying in distress as well. Jonah's in a place where his sin has brought him so low, so low, that he has no other recourse but to do. It's a psalm, it's a cry of repentance, of seeking the Lord's mercy in distress. You know, at the, at the assembly this past week, we were... Um, Dealing, they, they were dealing, I should say, the elders were dealing with um, issues related to uh, homosexuality and, um, and the ministry. Um, there was a speech made by, and I, and I shared, it, shared it around Facebook, it's running around the internet, and, and it's a wonderful speech. It was made by a man named O. Palmer Robertson. Dr. Robertson is a long-standing father of the faith, a doctor of our church, and um, part of his speech, I mean, most of his speech, I mean, it was just this 85-year-old gentleman, retiring most likely, just gets up, Bible in hand, and basically for five minutes preaches a sermon. And it was just so moving. But what I was so struck by his speech was that it was calm, cool, but convictional. There wasn't a change of tone in his speech. There, he was uh, not angry, not cynical, but he was direct and firm. 
he was highlighting this as far as homosexuality concerns. He's like, you know, for many, they are brought so low, and we are also so brought low to our in our sins that we, like them, need to be brought to that first word, as it were, of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word is to repent. Repent of our sins particularly. Because they do bring us so low. That is, the, that is the, the first thing that you and I learn when we hear of the gospel of our Lord. And that is a loving word. That is a loving gift that the Lord himself has given us. The ability, the grace to repent. Now it's a shame that it oftentimes takes us to where our sin drives us so far from the presence of the Lord as it does for Jonah, that it takes that to begin with. I mean, for, for many of us, for, for all of us, there have been periods in our lives, perhaps even this very week, perhaps even this very day, where the things of the Lord, His goodness, His grace are so far from us, we would just have nothing to do with it. The act and work of humility or of repentance is to be in a place where Jonah is, and that is to be brought into a heart and frame of humility, to being humbled, to walk before our Lord in the uh, in the humility, recognizing that He is a great Savior, He is a great God. We are weak, we are small, and that He even preserves our life in the midst of distress is indeed a grace of the Lord. We need to be reminded of that because throughout all of our lives we're going to be brought to different points where we would just rather have nothing to do with and we want to be out of His presence. And yet when we hear someone tell us calmly, coolly, convictionally, firmly to repent, we shouldn't see that as unloving. We should see it as the most loving thing that anybody could do. Because our Lord Himself calls us to repent in the same way. Bringing you to a point where you need to see, know of the mercy of God in distress, but even as Satan would try to remind you that you have nothing to do but to repent all day long and know nothing of the mercy and wrath of God, the Lord also tells us that in, out of His mercy, that the Lord, that there is hope in the Lord's mercy, and that's what we see in the following verses in four to seven. Now, I drive at that from verse five, or ver, the notes in verse six and, and seven, where He says, "You know, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me. Yet you brought me up, brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away." I remember the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. There is a there's a note of hope here that the Lord that He's driving at that even while He has fallen astray, while He has descended from the Lord's mountain, even while He is running away from the Lord, He can still say things like, "Yet I shall look again upon your holy mountain." Uh, uh, when my life was fading away, I remember the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. You brought my life from the pit. It's as if Jonah is saying in verse 6 that 
Even when I was down in the belly of Sheol, yet you brought me back up. You raised my life again. So there is hope. Now look at the look at the what he's getting at here in verse seven. He he notes re, remember that he is in a state of disobedience. He is in a state of sin, and that in verse seven he he recognizes that he's driven away from his sight. Not that is that anybody else caused it. He caused it himself. I am driven away from your sight, not merely because uh, because my sin is drawn there. I have run away, and you've kept me away. You've given me what I've wanted. You've brought me to this low point. That's exactly what, what I've wanted. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain. He's, he's, he's again, highlighting the nature of this, his distress as if he's drowning in the weight of his own sin and disobedience. Being the, the life, as it were, being choked out of him with the weeds about his head. You know, the, 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 in the grand scheme of things, that in any time we fall into sin and disrepute, we are often hearing those small whispers from Satan where he will tell us, there is no hope for you. There's no hope of victory for you. There's no hope of anything like that for you. You know, it's like what we, we talked about a, a few weeks ago where it's as if, you know, well... You know, the Lord forgave Satan, which is probably, or forget the Lord forgave David. The Lord forgave uh, Peter. He, he he might as well. He would probably forgive me as well. Presuming upon the Lord's grace, presuming upon the Lord's forgiveness, for Satan and his workings will tell us that whatever sin we commit is not that bad, or even. We know it's so bad. And he said, don't worry about it because you're never going to be free from it. You're never going, it doesn't matter how much you repent. It doesn't matter how much you may think you're forgiven. You are never going to be forgiven. I mean, that's a sense we have, isn't it? That it doesn't matter how many times we forgive, we forgive or may even try to forget. There's often times where we... lose sight of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is the, is the object of our faith. Not the, the quality of our faith or the, the greatness or goodness of our repentance, but Christ and Christ alone. So yeah, we are forgiven based on Christ's work. Because it's in the midst of that despair, it's in the midst of searching for hope that David, or that Jonah rather, is able to, to come back and say what we just so he's like, yet again, I shall look upon your holy mountain. He's highlighting the fact that again, or holy temple. He's highlighting the fact again, he's like the, the glowing apple of his eye or what, or the like is to, is to be at the altar room, the throne room of, of God in the Jerusalem temple. To be back in the presence of the Lord. His hope is that you brought my life up from the pit. It is, as, it, as we said, he was, he was resurrected. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ, even when he was deep down in the pits of hell for three days and three nights himself, he himself was brought up again, resurrected in the newness of life. And so that in him where he lives, so we live also. If you want to know of any hope, if you want to have any hope for the forgiveness of your own sins, particular sins, whatever they may be, as we've, as we've seen, as we've seen throughout this passage and as we will see again and see today, 
that the reason why we have hope at all is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only reason that I can look at, that I or any one of you can look at homosexuals, or even since we've just had abortion, people who've had abortions, we can look at them and say, there is hope for forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no sin so great or sin so small that He Himself, by the shedding of His own blood, cannot forgive. There isn't. There isn't. It's a good thing to know, too. Because there's a whole list of things that we know that the Lord is forgiven. If we look at first, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm not going to ask you to turn there. But looking at verse 7 to 11, or 8 to 11, it says, But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. He says, or in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the hope. Here's the promise. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. As I said, there's no sin so small, there's no sin so great that he cannot say those words. And such were some of you. But you have known the Lord Jesus Christ and he has washed you, he has made you clean, he has sanctified you and made you right with himself. You want to talk about hope. That is your hope that such were some of Jonah was a disobedient prophet, and he will continue on that at, at the end of the chapter, where it sort of leaves, at the end of the book, rather, what leaves you on a cliffhanger of him arguing, going back and forth with the Lord, but we'll get there eventually. But the point is this, is that even a prophet disobedient to the point of even being brought to the, be- to the, to the depths of the sea and the belly of a fish, himself can know this truth, such were some of But we're not only seeing the Lord's mercy in our distress and not only seeing the Lord's mercy in being able to have hope, but third of all, we will we see that there is the Lord's mercy in victory. And that's in verses 8 to 10. There are times in our lives where, we may, where Satan will tempt us to despair as the great hymn before the throne of God teaches us. There are times in our lives in which we believe that any particular sin we've spent years trying to to be trying to repent of that we will not ultimately have victory of. But in this passage, at least in these verses, that is being put to rest. Because, I mean, at the end of the verse, in verse 10, after he's finished his prayer, he, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited him out upon dry land. He, he is ultimately delivered from the pits of hell, as it were, the, the, the bellies of Sheol. But look what he does in verses 8 to 10 before before that happens. He says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you 
What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Setting up a distinction here. In verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols, he's essentially saying those who worship idols, those who worship false gods, those who, who worship any number host of things, whatever it might be, they have forsaken them for themselves the steadfast love of our God. Their hope of steadfast love, as it were, in the in the the, the, the language of this text. They forsake their hope, that hope we just talked about, they forsake it by worshiping false idols. Now, again, we should probably put this into some a little broader of a context here, because Remember who Jonah ordinarily prophesies to. It's not just the Assyrians, as he was sent to do. It was also the kings of Israel. To the northern, to the, not, not just any kingdom of Israel, not just the southern kingdom of Israel, where they had a few good kings here and there. But to the northern tribe of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, where they never had a good king. I mean, there were some that were better than others, but you know, as far as the northern tribe of Israel goes, there, were, there was not a single good king in Israel to be found in Israel. That's who he was prophesying to. And again, let's, let's note something about what they were doing. They were not merely just disbelieving in Yahweh altogether. They were not just disbelieving in the, in the Lord altogether. But what they were doing was that they were adding Yahweh to a number of other household gods. They, they, they erected altars to the, to the Baals and the, and the Asherah to look more like the nations that were around them. And part of the reason why the Assyrians were even sent to begin with was because, you know, you want to be idol worshippers? You want to you do that? I'll, I'll put you into the captivity of one of the worst, most brutal pagan nations that ever has been, been known to the world at this point, short of Babylon. Not only were they worshipping false gods like the Assyrians, but they were rejecting the Lord's covenant love. The covenant, that same covenant love that set, their, set his covenant with Abraham, where he says, you know, through you... And by my promises, through you, I will make all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will be your God forever. As I will be a God to your children after you. Or how about those covenant promises where he says, you know, I am that I am. Tell the people that I am has sent me to do what? To deliver you from the bondage of your captivity into Egypt. Now, he had told them previously, he had told Abraham and Isaac and Jacob previously that they would be going into captivity and exile. And yet, when they do, he still sends a deliverer. He still sends Moses to deliver them. And at this point in Israel's history, they have forsaken all of that and turned to follow other gods and have eschewed the Lord's covenant promises. Their turn, it is, as it were, the people of God are turning their backs on the Lord that saved them. But Jonah says, With the voice of thanksgiving, will I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now as we 
consider what it means for him to, to say this, he's, he's essentially saying that, you know, whereas they will worship the people of Israel and the king, people of Assyria will worship false gods and will, 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 will seek their salvation elsewhere, yet I will not do that. My sacrifices will be sacrifices of thanksgiving for offerings to the Lord of, of what he has done, who he is. And making vows, as it were, to continue to follow him and to commit oneself to him. And that when he says salvation belongs to the Lord, he's saying that, uh, there, that there, there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to go for in him that, that, that any hope that you and I have of any sort of tangible, real salvation, forgiveness of sins, forgiveness from the wrath and curse of God due to us for our sins. Only the Lord of glory himself Possesses the ability to do that. Possesses the ability to forgive your sin as far as the east is from the west. To remove as far from us as far as our wicked and never deals with us as our wickedness demands. There's a... Again, bring in another TV show. There's this... Uh, I, I don't ordinarily make a habit of watching TV, but, you know, here we go. Um... And I also don't often watch judge, uh, judicial TV shows, uh, TV shows with judges on it. But anyway, this one's quite good because there's this uh, judge in Rhode Island. His name is Judge Caprio, and it, you know he's he's often having his shows in traffic court. And uh, I, I've told a story where I've had to go into traffic court before. It's not it's not a fun place. <laughs> Uh, but one of the things that this judge, Caprio, is, is so known for is that he often, he, when he, whenever he's dealing with cases like, like traffic violations or things like that, he, he's generally a very merciful and gracious judge. He, he's one who, so it seems, follows the spirit of the law rather than to the letter of the law. It's not that he doesn't render judgments or anything like that. It's not so much a dereliction of duty. But he does listen to people, their stories and the circumstances for why they're brought in, and he does take a lot of those things into account. You know, I, I can't help but think of this one instance where there was a single mother who had come in, and she had asked, obviously she was going to pay the fine for, the, for, the, uh, for her violation. And, um, you know, in, in most courts, you know, I, they're not going to do this. Usually, unless the judge orders it, but she she basically said, you know, I want to pay pay the fine. Great, you're supposed to. But what she says out of that is, can I? But can I set up the payment plan or, or anything like that? And the judge is like, hold on, what are you talking about? And she she goes on and she starts talking about, um, you know. In paying it in full today, she would not have enough money for the next couple of weeks to uh, get food for her kid. Now, the judge hears that and is like, "Yeah, you're 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 fine. Make sure your 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 kid has food first. That's mercy. Obviously, she's going to have to pay the ticket, and obviously she's going to have to pay the fine, but not giving her exactly what she deserves. 
is a sign of a judge that is merciful to, to her in the same way that our Lord is merciful to us. And that ought to create in us the same heart and sense of mercy as well. That the Lord does not deal with us as our wickedness demands. And that should tell you something. That if there is any hope or, or thought that you will not have any sort of real victory over sin, that, he, that the Lord is just a cruel judge who will just continue to remind you day in and day out that any sin you brought up to Him, seeking forgiveness for, that He's just going to hold over you. That's not what He does. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and where there is forgiveness, there is free forgiveness, He gives it fully and freely to those who seek His face. And it results in this way in verse 10, where the Lord spoke to the fish as if He directed the fish almost. And it vomited Jonah up on the dry land. Out of the pits of woe, Jonah is vomited back up. So where you often are, are most weakest and are working to bring your sins and offer honest confessions before the Lord day in and day out, does He not hear you? Does He not forgive you? Does He not... Remove your sins as far as, as we said. He, he, there, he, he never deals with his people the way we deserve it. His people, at least. You want to talk about being able to have victory? Yes, you can. But it's about seeking the Lord's face and seeking his mercy. Seeking the Lord's mercy in distress and hope and in victory. And friends, the only thing I would want to leave you today from that is this. That there are going to be, that there are or are going to be people in your life who need the same mercy. Who need the same mercy of the Savior. Because it's easy for each and every one of us to look at someone who's fallen into sin, grievous sin, terrible sin, and say, well, you'll get, your, you'll get what's coming to you, we'll get, you'll get your just desserts, as it were. We have to have the same mercy and forgiveness that our Lord has, even to a disobedient prophet. It's not to excuse sin, it's not to make light of it. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying that if our covenant Lord extends mercy and grace and forgiveness to you, then we above all should be doing the same thing to each other and even to believer, to unbelievers who come to us seeking, tell me about Jesus. Because the Lord himself does not respond to us in a cruel or harsh way, but he is slow to wrath and judgment and in anger. Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Extend that mercy to somebody today. Let's pray together. Our great God in heaven, we thank you again for your word.
We pray that we will know more of your mercy and that we may walk with that in our hearts and minds. That in your wisdom we may walk even before those who are without. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.